You are listening to The Vincast, Australia's number one wine podcast. Over the past 100 episodes, I've heard from people all around Australia and even overseas who have listened to the show and enjoyed some of the amazing stories shared by guests who've joined me. Uh, And as this is a completely free podcast, it really does rely on the support of the listeners. So to help it grow, please let someone know about the show uh, that enjoys wine. Uh, You can uh, leave a rating and a review on the iTunes page once you've subscribed. You can come and visit me at intrepidwino.com, send me an email at thevincast at gmail.com, or follow me on uh, social media. Uh, I really have appreciated all the support I've had. I wouldn't have continued the show uh, as long as I have uh, if I didn't uh, hear from people who have enjoyed the show. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, I really uh, appreciate it, and uh, I hope to bring you so many more fantastic stories behind the wines that you enjoy, and uh, enjoy this week's episode. Episode 100 of the Vincast, I chat with Gilda Puri from Yeringberg Wines, a fantastic pioneer of viticulture and winemaking in the Yarra Valley region here in Victoria. Vincasters, welcome to episode 100 of the Vincast. My name is James Scarsbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and it is a real honor and a privilege to have you here on uh, this, uh, what is quite a momentous occasion. Uh, I'm really, really thrilled uh, to be here uh, at episode 100. Uh, I can't believe I've managed to get here after three years of doing the podcast. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listened. Most importantly, thank you uh, to the guests, the many guests who have joined me on the show. It really has been fantastic and uh, quite humbling to be able to share uh, some of the guest stories uh, with you, the listeners. Uh, and I hope to be able to share so many more with you. Um, of course, there's so many people involved in the wine industry, both in Australia and overseas, that I'd love to uh, to chat with. So as always, guys, please get in contact with me if you'd like to be involved or if you'd like to recommend someone. For this uh, very special episode, I thought um, I would sit down with someone who had a really profound influence on me as far as my wine career, Um, Gilda Puri from Yeringberg Wines, um, which if you haven't heard of it, is uh, one of the most historic uh, wine producers in the Yarra Valley, Uh, was one of the original three uh, big producers in uh, the late 19th century uh, and then part of the the revival of the Yarra Valley uh, in the, uh, the 60s and beyond. So um, the reason that I really wanted to have Gil on this episode was, uh, uh, as I share in the episode, um, Yeringberg made my, what I consider, um, epiphany wine, the 1997 Pinot Noir. Uh, And when I tasted that wine, uh, I I really realized that uh, the wine industry was what I wanted to do and what I wanted to dedicate myself to. And so uh, I was really thrilled to be able to to talk to Gil uh, and particularly to share their incredible historic story um, with the listeners. So please stick around until the end. Uh, I've got a really special treat for episode 100 uh, to share with you. But um, until then, I'll see you on the other side. 
So I'm uh, lucky enough to be uh, sitting uh, here in uh, in Colstrom in the Yarra Valley at uh, the wonderful Yarringberg site with Gilda Puri, uh, who is my guest for episode 100 of the Vincast. Uh, and Gil, of course, uh, is uh, an icon in the Yarra Valley and a Victorian wine in general. So Gil, uh, thank you very much for sparing some time for me and thank you for having me here at Yarringberg. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, Gil, I, uh, I usually start each episode of my show by asking my guests if they can do. Do they? What? What's the kind of earliest memory of wine um, that you have that made you sort of that you can remember thinking about wine in a different way? Do you remember what that might might be? Well, I've always uh, had wine with our meals here. The father always had wine with dinner, mm-hmm. so I probably just grew up with it. Sure. Was this um, wine that was being produced on, on the estate or where, where was the wine from, do you, do you know? Uh, father used to, after he'd pulled out the vineyard, he used to buy house wine for drinking, used to buy it mainly, I think, from Sammy Wynn at that stage, used to buy a quarter cask of white wine every year. Yeah. And I remember for years helping him in the old dark cellar hand bottling off the wine into bottles oh, and then wow. with the hand corking machine that's always been in the cellar rushing around pulling the baskets of wine about a lot of the baskets you were bottling were two dozen baskets so you couldn't pick them up you had to pull them across the floor <laughs> from one spot to the other how old were you at that time Oh, seven or eight or five or six, I, I oh, can't remember. I, I can imagine you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be able to lift that sort of thing. So, yeah, dragging it across. <laughs> um, so just can you tell me a little bit about um, Yeringberg and, and why it's uh, such an important, uh, has such important history as far as the Yarra Valley and particularly in, in the context of wine? Well, this is one of the three original v- vineyards that were established back in the 1860s. Yeah. And so I would say that uh, Yeringberg, St. Hubert's and Yering were the start of the Yarra Valley. It referred to those days as Lilydale wine industry. Uh-huh. Uh, Lilydale, of course, being, you know, the probably the largest town or, or uh, sort of a... Yeah, it's, that was it, the then, largest, then it was largest a town. Now, town. Now it's a and, suburb of Melbourne, I guess. <laughs> uh, if you talk to any of the or see any of the old descriptions they're always referred to as Lilydale wines. Yes. Um, and who, who was it that first brought vines here and planted them and, and do you know and why in, was in, it? In the Yarra Valley? Yes. The very first vines were brought down by the Rari brothers when they first settled here. Yes. And they'd brought them down from Camden. Mm-hmm and put a small vineyard in at Yering. I mean, the original history of the Yarra Valley settlement was the Rari brothers overlanded cattle down from the Monero mm-hmm. to, and they found the Yarra Valley, and it was a naturally treeless floodplain. Yes. You know, and it was actually, it was settled from the north, not from Melbourne. No, Okay. And I understand that they actually had a contract with the New South Wales government to pioneer a postal route for this new settlement down at Port Phillip. Right. Oh, okay. So they yeah, brought yeah. their cattle with them. Yeah. But anyway, they 
squatted on Yering, which at that stage was about 43,000 acres. <laughs> they didn't own it, not they a, just a, occupied not a small, it. Not a small but piece of land. registered boundaries of Yering was the Yarra River, Linda Creek and the Wurrialic Creek. Yeah. Um, was, so there was pretty much nothing here. There wasn't any kind of um, industry at all. There was no agriculture. There was nothing here. Wow. Okay. And and so this plant- this was in eighteen thirty six. Yes. And and planting well, Melbourne was only established in thirty five. I think. So planting vines was just a a part of of the agricultural. Well, concept. I brought some vines with them, right? And they put in a small vineyard. Okay. Which I think not very much happened with the. Had a Swiss guy come up from Geelong, um, James Dardell, mm-hmm. and he used to make a bit of wine for them. But this was the start of the Victorian wine industry, if you read David Dunstan's book about it. Because after a few years, the Raris, as they kept doing, moved on. Mm-hmm. Then they were down at Geelong, and then they were somewhere else. Yes. And young Paul de Costella from Switzerland. Was had come out and he took over their grazing lease. Yeah, in the oh, probably about eighteen fifty, or it might have been a bit earlier. And then my grandfather came out from Switzerland, and he joined in with Paul at Yering, and then also Paul's brother Hubert came out. And my grandfather's brother, and then there was uh, um, Charles Luber. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, sorry, Ernest Luber, and um, uh, another young Swiss guy. There was six young Swiss bachelors basically <laughs> running Yering. Yeah. And it was just, they took it on just before the gold rush. Okay. So then they were all growing beef. Uh, the next rundown was Gardner, was Gardner's run, and there was a series of them. And one of the advantages of the Yarra Valley in terms of selling beef to Melbourne was, was pre-refrigeration, mm-hmm. and you had to walk your cattle to the market. Mm-hmm. And in the summer, the people from northern Victoria didn't have enough water or it was too far. So the Yarra Valley was a good area to providing beef. You follow just, you yeah. just follow the water source. And Well, they were close to Melbourne. Yeah. And then gold was discovered and beef prices went up and they all made a lot of money out of their <laughs> beef. Yeah, of course. So about that period, um, Paul de Costello got married he married Lily Anderson. Lily Dale was named after Lily Anderson. Cool. Her father was the, uh, I think, chief of police or gold superintendent. Anyway, Anderson Street, South Yarra, is named after them. Oh, right. Well, there you go. Okay. And the old Anderson house is still there at Fairley, just off Anderson Street. Mm. Anyway, the other young Swiss guys thought that since Paul had got married, they'd perhaps better move out. <laughs> so Hubert Costello and my grandfather bought Dowry Station from William Rari's brother, Donald Rari, because he hadn't left when the others had left. And Dowry Station 
is on the Hillsville side of the Yarra River, bounded by the mountains. Right. And as they said in their records, they couldn't afford to buy a big station. They could buy a small one that they could run in conjunction with Yering. Mm-hmm. And Dowry was 25,000 acres. <laughs> Still pretty big. So that was in the mid-1850s. Yeah. I think the comment on some of the letters that when they first settled at Yering, there was only... I think 70 Europeans living in the whole of what is now the Shire Upper Yarra Ranges. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't highly populated. No. And do you want me to digress a bit more on this? Please, history? please go ahead. Well, quoting from some of Hubert Costello's books, and he wrote some very nice, interesting, he was quite a humorous writer. Mm. When he first came out to join his brother at Yering, He'd been in the French cavalry and he'd resigned his commission to come out to join his brother Mm -hmm. and they all brought money with them. And he arrived in Melbourne and his brother met him. It must have been about mid-1850s. And they were staying at the Melbourne club and he went out for a ride in the domain on a horse with a brand-new saddle which was very slippery and the horse kicked up and he was bucked off and lay on the ground and didn't move and they all rushed up and said are you hurt he said oh only my pride because <laughs> <laughs> he'd been a cavalry officer in the in the french army yeah and then his other story against himself when well, he said he was a real new chum and he was riding out to yearing for the first time to visit his brother. Mm-hmm. And I think they must have left a little bit late in the day, but he got as far as Box Hill, which was all forested, mm. and it was getting dark and he knew he couldn't get there, so he didn't know quite what to do with his horse in the dark, and they found a forester's hut. So he thought about it, so he put the horse in the hut and he slept outside <laughs> so the horse couldn't get away. <laughs> wow. But anyway, he and my grandfather then bought dowry and spent only two or three years there. And then Hubert went back to Switzerland in about 1860. And my grandfather, they sold dowry and my grandfather then bought another property at Kilara around here. Then he sold that and... Went, also went back to Switzerland, leaving his younger brother, Samuel, in charge of things here. Mm-hmm. He had a little vineyard called Kuringering. And in the meantime, Paul had, you know, this lovely story David Dunson describes why he's called his history book better than Pomar. They were all at Yering and they'd been drinking a lot of this French pommard that they'd bought, mm-hmm. and suddenly found there was no more pommard. So they went down the cellar and found barrels of this wine that the Raris had made a few years before. So they brought a jug or two of that up, and they said, this is better than pommard, <laughs> which is what David Dunson has used as a, as a history of the Victorian wine industry. Mm-hmm. And that was when they decided 
the go from a small vineyard to be a big Don't industry. They, they, they could see the quality in the wines. So they, yes, they and there was a demand the for wine in England at that stage. Okay. I think it was possibly coincided with the phylloxera in Bordeaux. Sure. Uh, you know, Hubert de Costello called one of his memoir books uh, John Bull's Vineyard. Mm-hmm. So Paul then put in, I think, 100 acres of vines and Samuel de Puri, my grandfather's brother, was contracted to help plant that, but he was losing money on that contract and so he got um, the Deschamps brothers to take that over. So Paul had got his vineyard going and then my grandfather came back by another sheep property and uh, he and Huber actually came back together going to buy another sheep property but sheep were too expensive and they discovered that Paul had got into the wine business mm-hmm. and also the land acts had come in so the Yarra Valley had been subdivided and Paul had to buy his land from the government at a pound an acre Wow. Which is pretty expensive. That's a, well, I mean, if it's a big property, yeah. Which split up, successfully split up a 43,000 acre property pretty smartly. Sure. So they're all busy mortgaging and borrowing, and and Hubert bought part of Yering, and my grandfather bought another part of Yering, which he called Yeringburg because it was the hill above Yering. Mm. And they all got into wine at that stage. So first vines here were planted, well, the property was bought in 1863. Mm-hmm. So between the vines went in at that stage. So that was the start of the Yarra Valley wine industry and the start of Yeringberg as a wine property. Mm-hmm. But my grandfather had actually been out here for 10 years before that running cattle property. Was there any particular reason that he came out to Australia? Was was at a time? Oh, why, was it why did they all come out? Yeah, uh, I think this was a reaction to basically it's a spin-off from Napoleon. Sure, um, because Napoleon upset all the social order across Europe, mm-hmm. and the Puris of the Castellas were in the sort of ruling family groups of Switzerland. They were all bankers or doctors or government people. Yeah. And then there was a sort of social revolution was coming through and there was a... They came from Neuchâtel and Neuchâtel only joined Switzerland in 1820. Mm -hmm. It used to be an independent principality owing allegiance to the King of Prussia rather nominally. Oh, right. And then these... Geneva and Neuchâtel, these other places, joined Switzerland okay. and become a much more egalitarian thing. So a lot of the young men really felt they didn't have a lot of future. Mm-hmm. So they were looking to migrate. It was happening all over Europe. Yeah. And the Charles Latrobe had married a cousin of the family in Switzerland. Right. And then he was appointed superintendent of the colony in Victoria. Mm-hmm. So they all, all knew of him, and especially knew his wife. And so if you've got the choice of going to Canada or Brazil or Australia and you know somebody's in charge there, 
that's where they went. Sure. You might you might get some preferential advantages. No, I think Latrobe, you know, helped them, but he wasn't encouraging them. <laughs> A lot of people say he encouraged them, but I think he would was not overwhelmed, but a lot of Swiss came into Melbourne at that stage. Right. And um and not not all of them in the wine industry it was the it was Burgies here who are well established fruit growers, they're still here. There was other there's a lot of Swiss families came in in that period. Right. So whereas, like, you know, if you look at the Barossa Valley, a lot of Germans ended yes. up there. It's quite interesting. Mm. Um, so the Yarra Valley was actually, and Geelong, was saying there was a lot of Swiss at Geelong. In fact, that yeah. whole Geelong yeah, wine industry, yeah. which in many ways predated the Yarra Valley. Okay. Because I was saying earlier that Dardell was growing grapes down there. Yeah, yeah. 20 years before. Okay. Um, and so when your grandfather arrived, did he come fairly quickly to the Yarra Valley? Or yes, he... he came straight. Right, okay. Because he knew Paul de Costello was here. Mm-hmm. So he came. Sure, okay. Um, do you know much about like what decisions he made about planting a vineyard originally here? Uh, well, we know what he planted. Okay. Uh, we have a lot of archives which I've now given to the, well, no, not called the Lilydale Museum anymore, I think it's the Yarra Rangers Regional Museum, but it started off being the Lilydale Museum. Yeah. And I spent about 20 years getting that organised and convincing various governments to fund it. Yeah. So they've got a proper archives mm-hmm. and we've got day-to-day diaries since 1874 mm. and... You know, lots of account books and things. They've given all that stuff to the museum and they've been going through that. Yeah. And Max Allen recently, you know, developed that uh, story about Corin Derek and Barak and my grandfather mm. and paintings and things. Mm. So, yeah, there was a lot of records. and They had a range of varieties of grapes the original vineyard was about, I think at the maximum, about 70 acres. Okay. And then I think it shrank down to about 50. Sure. And they grew Marsan, which they labelled White Hermitage. Fair enough. <laughs> and that was the one that won gold medals all around the world. Mm. And that's the one the vineyard had its reputation okay. for. Okay, yep particularly overseas. A thing to remember, the Yarra Valley wines at that stage were all sold in bulk. Yeah, they all not bottled. No, mm. it was a small amount of bottling for the local market, which was almost non-existent. Yeah. But most of the wine went out in bulk through merchants to London. In, in, in barrels? In, in barrels. Casks. Right, okay. Which is why we had our own cooper here making barrels. Right. I mean, there's nothing else you could ship it in the winter. Stainless steel drums in those days. What I'm interested. Do you know what kind of what what wood would the um? The they must have used from? imported oak because right. yeah, eucalyptus okay. is not a great thing for wine. no no. So they had Marsan, which they labelled as White Hermitage. Yes. They had uh, a wine they called Toke, which I understand was actually made from Haslavalu. Right. The Hungarian grape. Yes. But that's a dry wine. So closer to actual Tokay then. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
They had Pinot Blanc. They had a bit of Pinot Gris. The Pinot Blanc may have been Chardonnay, but no one's certain about it. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess, yeah, mm. white burgundy. Mm, mm. White burgundy is Chardonnay. Mm. But, but like, Pinot Blanc is a separate grape. Exactly, exactly. So I'm not sure about white, that. White burgundy, the wine is, is Chardonnay, yeah. generally, mm. um, where, you know, whereas mm. Pinot Blanc, mm. yeah. And I had Gouet, which was just a cheap variety. Mm-hmm. You see somebody recently pointing out Gouet is one of the oldest DNA sources for grapevine. I, I heard something about that. Yeah, Gouet and Pinot. Pinot Noir. Um, I think they were the main white varieties. Oh, and Chasler, because mm-hmm. they come from Swister, so they had Chasler. Of course. And Viv Thompson, I think, probably still has some Chasler, doesn't he? I think so. Mm. He didn't mention it on his episode. <laughs> yeah. And then the red varieties, they had Pinot Noir, which they labelled as Burgundy. Yes. And they had Shiraz, which they labelled as Hermitage. Of course. And they had... Cabernet Sauvignon, which they label as Sauvignon. Oh, really? Mm. Not Claret? No. Or, okay, interesting. So we've got s- sets of all the old labels. So we, wow. Mm. Um, and so you, you, so you mentioned that you know, there was a very small local market. Would, was Melbourne considered a local market? Yes. Okay. Um, but everything else was being sent out in casks. Mm. And, and uh, as the time went on, the local market, I think, became more important. Was that would have been a bit more to do with gold rush and you know a lot oh, more people coming into Victoria? Yeah, not so much then, but after the first war, you know, the export market had died, and sure. father was depending more and more on the local market. Sure. Um, so, how did how did moving into kind of the twentieth century? Um, how did Yeringberg change? I, what, what was was wine for a period of time? Was wine the primary source of income from from the, the property? It would have been one of the main ones, but it was a thousand acre property, right? Still is, yeah. And they only had seventy acres of vines, yeah. Okay, so they were still running a beef, a beef operation, right? And um, my Grandfather started that, as I say, in 1863, and he married Ada Ibbotson in 1869, mm-hmm. and the Ibbotsons funded a lot of the development here. Oh, wow. Because uh, they'd... Um, Alfred Ibbotson um, was a wealthy trader in Geelong, dealing with the gold mines. Yeah, okay. And... Then when my father was was father was actually born in eighteen seventy, right? Which pretty soon after the wedding, yeah, yeah. And he grew up here as a young boy. They had their own tutor here, their own schoolhouse here. He didn't go to school in Australia. Then he was sent over to Switzerland for school at sixteen. Yeah, but. While he was young here, he knew the Aborigines and Barak used to take him out tracking and things like that. Wow. So history is fairly short in Australia. My father 
knew a guy who was present when Batman signed the treaty with the Aborigines because <gasps> Barak was actually there as a 14-year-old boy. Wow. That's incredible. So, um, and so anyway, father went over to Switzerland and he went to university there, then he joined the army. He was going to be a professional cavalry officer in the Swiss army. Okay. Uh, I think he was a captain of cavalry at 21 or something. Wow. And then his father died. Okay. And they said, you've got to come home. So yep. he dropped all that and came here and took over running Nuremberg in 1890 when he was 20, 21. Yeah. So he probably changed things around and uh, bought some more land a bit later than that Mm -hmm. and kept the vineyard going. But the 1890s depression, I think, was pretty hard on most of the vineyards here. I think that was when Yering sold out. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was pulled out and St. Hubert's went on until about 1912, I think. Okay. But Hubert Castella had sold out to um, Andrew Rowan, mm-hmm. who eventually I think sold out to David Mitchell, I think, you know, pulled the vineyard out. Yeah. And Nuremberg was left as the last of the big vineyards to keep going and it kept on until 1921. Right. And the father said that stage he had four villages of white wine in the cellar. Yeah. So he said there's not much point in keeping on growing it. So just just pulled everything up. <laughs> mm. Wow. I mean, like this was sort of post some, you know, um, introduction of some phylloxera in different parts of Victoria, well, but it wasn't in the area at that time. Um, Geelong. Yeah. In the 1880s. Yeah. This was a phylloxera-free area yeah. until quite recently when Foster's managed to bring it in. Yeah, yeah. I, I was working at Domain Chandon when that happened. That was big but news. what um, made it more difficult was I think Downey Mildew came in mm-hmm. and Starlings and also the English market wasn't as good, but more difficult to export and wages were getting higher, uh, eventually it just wasn't economic. Mm-hmm. It's always been a high-cost area. Mm-hmm. So dairying was much better, as I think one of the de Gassellas said, the dairy cows killed the Yarra Valley wine industry. Yeah. St. Hubert's became a big dairy. Sure. And, and, and it was, like, the Yarra Valley was primarily known as, as, as dairy country right, for, yeah. for a long, long time. Yeah, when the whole milk, you know, before refrigeration, it was yeah. close in area. Yeah. There's very little dairying left in here now. There's only one or two big operators and they're mainly working with cheese contracts. By that point, the population of Melbourne would have been pretty huge. Yeah. There would have been a lot of people mm. who would have, you know, mm. emigrated or, or mm. moved, um, you know, for, for the gold rush. There's a lot of money at that time. Well, and then... That's right. In the first, well, all that big expansion of Melbourne, marvellous Melbourne with the gold rush in the 80s. Yeah. Then they had this depression in the 90s. Yeah. And then there was the Edwardian period and the First War sort of changed. I think it's quite different in the 20s. Yeah. But I think that... The fine wine market or consumption in Australia was still pretty low. Sure. 
and the people still tended to buy French wine rather than local wine. Really? That's very, very strange. I mean, like at a certain point, the local wines that were being consumed were mostly fortified wines. Am I yes. right? Yeah. I mean, the Australian wine industry survived on fortifieds all through those long years around the First World War. Yeah. Because that market was still operating in overseas. So so when you were growing up at Yeringberg, mm. um, this was during a period where it was pretty much just dairy. Am I right? Was well, that- no, it was running beef. Beef. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cows. Yeah. But the, as far as I was concerned, there was the old cellars and buildings here which were dark and not used and father used to tell me what they used to use them for, but it, the wine industry had stopped years before. So, so, so the infrastructure was, was all still here, even though well, there was... The, there yeah, was, the buildings were here. Yeah. Well, all the equipment had been sold, all the barrels had been sold. Right. And, 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 and your father wasn't really using the, the cellars for anything in no, particular? No. Right. Just a nice, dark, cool place in the summer. Okay. It wasn't even electricity. <laughs> so what prompted you to, to sort of restart the, the wine side of the business? Oh, of, of because the I'd sort of grown up with the thing and a lot of the old wine people around Melbourne, like Dave Southern Smith, were saying, you know, remember these famous Yarra Valley wines? Yeah. And then in the 1960s, a lot of migration after the war and a lot of Italians, Greeks, you know, wine was starting to become a popular thing in Melbourne. Do you think like that was a, it was a cultural thing? Like just wine was sort of thought of as quite um, civilised? <laughs> I hate to use that word. but you oh, know, I think like so, a, a yeah. I think thing. beer consumption was perhaps going down, but certainly there was a whole heap of new uh, Mediterranean Europeans had come into yeah. Australia yeah. and they were interested in wine. And there was a, I don't know if you remember, there was a, quite a boom in red wine consumption in the early 1960s. I didn't know that. I remember Bill Chambers and these people saying, oh, we better prune the vines this year, you know, there's, people are interested. Yeah, okay. Rather than just letting it well, you know, was, you know, keep About the period and, yeah. when Morris O'Shea was... Yes, of course, of course. I have. I've, uh, have you read the the wonderful book written by Campbell Mattinson, the, the Wine Hunter? Yes, very good. Really wonderful book. Mm. Um, so, so okay. So there was a, a, a this burgeoning market for yeah. for dry wine, for table wine. Yeah, but particularly red wine at that yeah. stage. Yeah. And so people kept talking about the Yarra Valley wines, and there was a few old bottles about, and so there was several of us thought it was you know be an interesting thing to replant some of the Yarra Valley vineyards and see what, what happened. Okay. So in some ways it started off as an overgrown historical hobby. <laughs> A curio. <laughs> but we put some in. Ernie Sester was probably one of the first, you know, at the new St. Hubert site, which has got no relation to the old St. Hubert's. No. It's in a sort of frost hollow. Uh, so he was... I think he came up and talked to my father about it, you know, just asked for some comments and asked him whether he was interested in being involved. He said, no, he wasn't. Mm. Um, so he put this mixed farm in, with chooks, and he wanted to have pigs, but the council wouldn't let the pigs, so he, he had chooks and wine. <laughs> chooks and wine. It was all, those, they used to make, all the wine was made in the chicken sheds. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Just like Maurice O'Shea, you, yeah. you, you, you worked yeah. with whatever you had. Yeah, and Graham Miller and Peter Ferguson at Yarra Glen, mm-hmm. Bailey Caritas and Reg Egan at the same time had the same ideas. Mm-hmm. And Reg and uh, Bailey started off in partnership but it didn't last very long. Then Reg went off to Juan Turner and Bailey Caritas established Yarra Yearing. Yeah, and John Middleton and Peter McMahon were both growing grapes in their home gardens and making a small amount of wine. Yeah. And they were both very keen on that. So we obviously had to be in that. And uh, actually at that stage we were the only replanted vineyard in one of the classic sites. Yeah. It was a very well-established site for, yeah, for, so for viticulture. Yeah, so we just planted a small area of a couple of acres with a whole range of different things and 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 had you done did you do research about what varieties were planted previously and well what, i knew what what varieties yeah, were planted. Okay. i had all the records sure and also the sort of things i like to drink so we didn't worry about the toke no or the gue okay but we had to put the marsan had to put the marsan in <laughs> yeah and quite a bit of trouble finding Philoxera free rootstock. I went and talked to Eric Perbrick and he explained to me about Marsan and things. He said, yeah. I, can't, I can't let you have stuff from Tabuk because we've got Philoxera. Yeah, okay. So I had to get it from Golgol. Mm. So we tried Riesling, that wasn't much good. We tried Valdepina, that wasn't much good. Uh, put Pinot Noir in and... Um, Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, part of the Cabernet sauce was Ian Higginbotham turned up one day and said, why aren't you planting vines? And he brought a whole carload of Cabernet cuttings. Wow. Which we put in the rose garden for a couple of years while we thought what we were going to do with them. <laughs> <laughs> so we put those in and some other Cabernet and thought Merlot and these Bordeaux varieties sure. would be good and Cabernet Franc. And I'd always liked um, Chateau Aubryon, so I planted on more or less the same cepage as they've got. Yeah. In about the same proportions. Okay. So was there any wine being produced at that point from the Yarra Valley? Um, yeah, I think Bodhi Carras had probably had produced a vintage or two. Mm. John Middleton had made a, some homemade wines. Did you have the opportunity to taste these wines? Yes, because we, Jeff Norris and I had started the Liddell Wine Show. Wow. At that stage. Yeah. And we, it was open to all comers all around Australia. We had all sorts of interesting wines turned up. Far out. And Mount Mary put some wine in there and they won a gold medal. And things. I mean, I can only imagine that then there might have been what, maybe a couple of hundred at most producers around Australia at that point? Yeah, there weren't many, no. Yeah, hardly any. Mm. That, that, I mean, that must have been a really fantastic opportunity to sort of look at wines from yeah, all yeah. different parts of Australia. Mm. And we had um, Doug Seabrook as judge. Mm-hmm. He was pretty helpful to it. <laughs> so there was quite a interest in wine. Wine was a thing a lot of people were interested in yeah did you but but it wasn't like a big kind of 
this is the future and invest in this kind of thing. It's no, like, no, it was all small, small yeah. things. That, okay. Um, people like, um, did, you, did you ever see that film of Victorian Vintage? No. No. It was made by the Australian Film Commission and... Um, How long ago was that? Well, it was in the 1960s. Wow. Okay. Oh, I've got a copy of it somewhere. Um uh, Anyway, they, they came around here and they were going around Victoria before any vines were in the Yarra Valley, but he was trying to think where the vines had been and showing what, what could happen. And Yeah. Were there, were there still wines from, you know, way back in, in oh, yes, the original was, times that you were yeah, sort of wines like, about, tasting? We, we've still got a, a few. Wow. Mm. So how many, how many acres were first replanted at Yarringberg? Uh Two. Just two. <laughs> and then we found that you couldn't get a licence to sell unless you had ten. Right. So I worked on some of my friends in politics and we got that changed down to four. <laughs> so I planted another two so that <laughs> meant I could get a licence. Right. And a few years later we did a 25% extension to five. Mm-hmm. And we put Chardonnay in. Okay. And um, what were your reference points as far as how you would think about making the wine? Like, um, was there much sort of general knowledge about how how to make the wine? No, I think we were all talking talking to each other. Bailey Caritas was the only one that had any professional qualifications. Right. I mean, he he had a formal degree from Roseworthy and he'd been New Zealand government Winemaker, right, setting up the New Zealand wine industry before he came back yeah, here. Yeah, but they're all sort of professional people. John Middleton had you know great ideas on how to make wine. He talked to a lot of people, mm. and we all went around and talked to each other and talked to other people. And so there was a great community around it. Yeah. Okay. But uh, no, I had no formal qualifications in winemaking. I went up and spent three days with John Brown at Miller during Vintage and followed them around seeing what they were doing and taking notes. How big How big was, was their um, uh, business at that point? Oh, fairly big. Because they, they, they would have, you know, survived well through that as yes. far as the fortified wine business. <laughs> mm. Okay, so that, that must have been a really good reference point. What about, like, um, with your father? Did, did you discuss much with him about, you know, when, no, was, when he, he was making wine? He... he he died when I was um, 23. Right, okay. And I, I, it was a year after I'd graduated from university. So it would have been too, a bit too early, yeah. And so I came back here and took over the property, you know, quite young and sort of doing my own thing. Right, okay. So but, he, but I got him to write down a few notes and things about his views on winemaking, which okay. I've got archived. Wow, mm. that, that would be fantastic to read. Um, and and so you were, you were using the, the the buildings as they were originally intended to to make wine. Uh, that was the general theory. But I had an architect looked at the old press room. You've probably seen it, haven't you? Oh, uh, well, a while building. ago, yeah. But it's a big two story winery, National Trust classified, and it's got a wooden floor. And, yeah. And I had an architect looked at it and. 
He said, do you realise what you're trying to do? You're trying to make wine on a wooden floor above a big cellar underneath. You have no drainage whatsoever. This is impossible. <laughs> You'd have to put a false floor in. Yeah. So we rethought that and just used part of the underground part for making the wine. Yeah, okay. So originally they didn't have any running water. So if you haven't got any running water, I guess you don't need drainage. Yeah, true. I mean, they must have used a sort of dry cleaning process. Yeah. That's a, yeah. They must have used a mop or something. <laughs> Hygiene's a slightly easier prospect these days, I guess. <laughs> um, and so, so when, when, what was the first kind of vintage that you, released into the market and and what were the original, what, what were the first impressions from, from customers? Yeah, we put the first vines in, in when I came back from America in 1969. Mm-hmm. And what, I think, what, what took you to the United hmm? States? I was working at the University of Wisconsin doing a postdoc. Really? Hmm. And what, what was the field? Um, working on oxidative phosphorylation in mitochondria. Goodness gracious. <laughs> I've got a PhD in biochemistry. Okay. I got bored farming and decided to do a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a leap. Did, did, did that help at all with, with, the, with the wine, <laughs> studying oh, biochemistry? Well, it teaches you to think and you've got a pretty <laughs> sound um, scientific background. And you have a little bit more understanding about the processes of what, like what's actually happening at a. Well, at, that's one of the things that was difficult in those early days. Mm. No one seemed to. Everyone taught theory, but no one taught cellarcraft. Right. It's a thing that you had to pick up as you went along. Right. So it was a I lot mean, of trial you know, and error type I, stuff. You, I, I could cynically say that winemaking actually is the exercise in applied plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we. So, so you came back from the from the states. Yeah, and John Middleton and Peter McMahon had got going and bought their properties and put some grapes in at that stage. Yeah. So we went ahead and put a small vineyard in, and I think our first vintage was 1973. Right. And I think we had one quarter cask of Shiraz and Cabernet. We. Picked the Shiraz, and then we, some week later, we picked the Cabernet and put it in on top. <laughs> okay, and it was just enough to fill a quarter cask. So, how much? How much in in normal or like what was it metric uh, volume is was uh, is a quarter? That's about two hundred liters. Okay, so it's a, a roughly mm. what a, a barrique yeah, is. Yeah. Okay, you got nine liters to the dozen, so you've got. Right. About so a, a cask a cask was somewhere yeah. between eight hundred and eight hundred liters and a thousand liters. Well, a barrique is two twenty five liters. Yeah, and a hogshead's three hundred. Yes, which is punchin's five hundred. Yeah. Okay. The old vineyard here worked in very large. The old winery worked in very large wood. Mm-hmm. All, all the white wines were made in five hundred thousand gallon. Big oval casks, you know, Swiss style. Yeah. And they stayed in wood for you know, a year or so. Yeah. On the lees and everything. Mm, but they let the father said he let the tartrate build up on inside his barrels. Yeah. Because it kept the wines lighter and finer. And sometimes the tartrate would be an inch thick. So basically, 
it was an inert container. Yeah, of course. If they'd had stainless steel, they'd have used it, but they didn't, so they used these big old barrels. Yeah, very neutral. Hmm. Which is why, if you look at our cellar, the stillage looks like overkill for bariques. <laughs> you know, the stillage logs they're on are all 15 by 15. Yeah, pretty big. <laughs> Inches, yeah. Um, and so so that was the first one it was released. How, how, how did you, was the label based on the original Well, at that stage label? we, I think we actually bottled that off by hand. Yeah. And then we went to a label maker. We used the original labels. Mm. Our label is still the original yeah. uh, 1900 labels and just altered the design a little bit to suit the various regulations. Sure. But, you know, with the coat of arms and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's the original label. Yeah. I mean, that's why it looks so classic. Mm. Uh, yeah, so we got a label. Do we hand cork them and put plastic tops on them and I, I think we sold all that pretty really. it's still looking pretty good that way. <laughs> you still have yeah. you still have some bottles. Mm. Even though it was only a quarter cask. Mm. And then we had a bit more the following year and uh then about that stage I got Seabrooks to bottle it for you to send it down in drums down to Seabrooks. Okay. Which was about the stage Herman Schneider owned it. Right. Um, what What's the, the biggest the vineyard ever got as far as acreage? Oh, well, that's a different story. So the original... When, no, when, I mean, when you replanted. Well, it got up to about six, five, five to six acres. Wow. Oh. Uh, and then when my son David came back to work here at about 1996, mm-hmm. uh, we thought that, that stage would be get more income on the place. Okay. So we organised a contract with BRL Hardy to grow grapes for them. Right. So th- we put in 50 acres just for growing to Hardy's. Wow. Which is the vines you see on the drive when you're coming up. Yes. So we actually had 50 acres plus plus five at one stage, but that was a 10-year contract, which was quite good, but then Beryl Hardy sort of turned into Constellation that turned into somebody else that disappeared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they've after pulled, 10 years, that contract stopped. So we're still growing some grapes for sale to various people. The main channel on are buying some. Yeah, I But remember. we pulled out about half that 50 acres, so that's down to about 20, 25 now. Right, okay. And they wanted Shiraz, so we overplanted beyond the contract to get more Shiraz for ourselves. Sure. So we've got about an acre, acre and a half of Shiraz in that block. And another thing they wanted was Viognier, which they wanted, they didn't be able to seem to sell that, but we've kept some of the Viognier and we're making a Viognier wine now as well. Right. Okay. And um, how how did um, the wine market evolve for for Yeringberg um, over the over the years? Well, mainly it was sort of mailing list thing. Right. And 
We've also been selling we were selling wine to London for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Not having me for some years and a bit to Switzerland. We were selling some to a, we've got still got an agent in uh, San Francisco, and we've got an agent in uh, Hong Kong and another one in Shanghai. So we done quite a bit of exporting. At one stage we were selling about a third export, a third private mail order and a third to restaurants. Mm-hmm. I think the restaurant wholesale is probably higher than that now. Yeah. You have a very good distributor, mm-hmm. certainly you know, yeah. in Melbourne. Um, so we still sell quite a bit on mail order and have an open day once a year or open weekend, which is open to all comers, and we tell all the mailing list people about it. And there's well, a cast of thousands here, and they all come up and taste wine. Well, it's it's interesting. Um, the, the the part of the reason that I wanted to have you as my guest on episode 100 was because, um, as I was telling you before we started recording, um, the 1997 Yeringberg Pinot Noir is my epiphany wine, mm. the wine that um, when I tasted it, mm. uh, it made me t- think totally differently about wine and cemented my career mm. path in the wine industry. And so I remember back when I was working in the cellar door at Domaine Chandon, mm. um, the, the the weekend of the open weekend, um, my my boss said, come on, let's jump in the car. We're going to go over to Yeringberg and we're going to mm. taste the wines on the open day. And I remember uh, telling Sandra, about the mm-hmm. fact that oh no, I was actually I think it was Catherine mm. um, about you know the the experience I'd had and she said oh oh that's that's lovely wonderful why don't you write it up on the board you know because we like to keep a record of people who want to you know have special memories of Yeringberg mm. wines and and, mm. and to share with um with mm. you know with the mailing list and so I remember you know writing down that mm. I'd have this wonderful experience at Izad restaurants and mm. I think it was the first experience I had tasting wines with a bit of age I think mm. it was. 2006 when mm. when I had it mm. uh, and so I was nine years old mm. at that point so uh, you know it, it it really did open my eyes to mm. to one so uh, I guess I wanted to to thank you uh, and your family for uh, for, for mm. giving me that opportunity to have that experience I, I certainly wouldn't be here today if I hadn't had that experience with the wine but uh, look this has been absolutely fascinating talking about the history of Yaringberg and, and and your involvement, uh, certainly in terms of uh, the rebirth of the Yaravani wine industry. Um, you know, I think listeners of the podcast would know that I, I really do have a very, very strong relationship with the Yarra Valley and a lot of my previous guests have at some point or another made wine in the region. So I guess on behalf of them as well, thank you so much for, uh, for everything you've done for um, the wine industry in Victoria and Yarra Valley in particular. All right, that's very good. You know, we started off fairly small and kept that way for quite a while, but now Sandra and David are taking it, I think, to another level. David's in charge of the vines and Mm -hmm. Sandra's uh, working on the – she's making the wines the last few years. Yeah. And doing a fantastic job. I I think it's it's been really telling um, over the last five years Mm. that – this, sort of this is new enthusiasm and interest in Yeringberg, and I, I, I'm excited to see um, people who work in the the industry in the trade, and also consumers, younger consumers in particular, showing a lot more interest in you know very important historical 
wine mm. producers like Yeringberg, mm. uh, like some of my other previous guests, like Bests yeah. and Tabilk. Uh, so um, it, it really has been a, an honor and a privilege to have you on uh, the uh, mm. the episode, and uh, I'll be sure to uh, to let everyone know how they can uh, stay uh, yeah. following Yeringberg wines. Yes, because uh, we're still small and we're only making one version of each wine. We don't have a second label and all our wines are individual vineyard wines. Mm. So each year is variable depending on the season. No, that's, that's the important but part. But we're, we're not buying grapes or blending. It's, everything comes off the same block of land each year. Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for your time today, Gil, and uh, I look forward to trying more Yeringberg wines very soon. Good. My sincerest thanks again to Gil for being on episode 100 of the Vincast. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about uh, his fantastic wines, go to yeringberg.com and make sure to follow Yeringberg on Twitter and Instagram at Yeringberg. Thank you for listening to this episode as well. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, I've got a really special treat uh, for this 100th episode. Um, Linus Wilson, who is uh, the head sommelier of the Hillsville Hotel in the Yarra Valley uh, and also a, a listener of the podcast, has uh, let me know that he's designed this really gorgeous uh, wines and winemakers map of the Yarra Valley. Uh, and he has very generously donated 10 copies of that map for me to give away. So head to intrepidwino.com to the post about uh, this episode, uh, and you can find out how you can win one of these copies. And make sure to go to the etsy.com, E-T-S-Y.com website, and search for the shop Wines and Makers uh, if you'd like to buy a copy of that map yourself. As always, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, come to intrepidwino.com. Send me an email at thevincast at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at intrepidwino. Uh, and you can also go to the intrepidwino YouTube page where I have tasted Yeringberg wines uh, and, and shared my impressions of them. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast. There's many different ways you can do that on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Podbean, on the uh, the new Wooshka app, uh, which I've actually started uploading the episodes to. Uh, and if you do subscribe, it means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. Uh, and I'd love for you to leave a rating and review. But I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for being uh, on one or more of the 100 episodes that I've had so far. I hope to bring you 100 and many more beyond that. But uh, uh, until next time, bye.